This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021, and this is your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later this hour, a weekend in 1969 on the University of Arkansas campus when national television was coming for the football game of the century. And African-American students on campus were seeking representation in campus affairs. Our latest examination of the first 150 years of the U of A with Charlie Allison ahead. The trends for COVID-19 in Arkansas are giving health officials a bit of concern. The Arkansas Department of Health reports more than 1,000 new cases diagnosed in the latest 24 hours of testing. That's the highest one-day total since late September. Hospitalizations increased by a net of 19 patients. The rate of people in Arkansas hospitalized with the virus has increased by 18 percent in the past week. Governor Asa Hutchinson is announcing he'll call a special session of the Arkansas General Assembly on the morning of December 7th. He says the lead item for the session will be the governor's proposals for tax cuts. He says he's been told by leadership in both chambers there is enough support for the proposals. I spoke today with both uh, the Speaker of the House and uh, Mike, uh, Matthew Shepard and Senate Pro Tem Jimmy Hickey. And they confirmed that we have uh, uh, more than a majority vote on both uh, on the tax bills to have that passed. The governor says other cleanup matters, technical corrections, and other lingering effects from previously passed legislation will also be taken up. He says he does not want legislation proposing abortion restrictions similar to those passed in Texas this year to be part of the special session. That will not be on the call for the reasons I have previously stated, which is that we have really the most restrictive abortion law already in place in Arkansas that has been enjoined by the court being reviewed constitutionally. <clears throat> Secondly, there's the, uh, a number of cases, including the Texas-style enforcement action uh, and the Mississippi case uh, pending before the United States Supreme Court and uh, any additional action should await guidance uh, from the Supreme Court. The official call for the session will be made closer to the 7th. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is launching five satellite training centers to improve digital health across the state. The new centers, part of the South Central Telehealth Resource Center at UAMS, include a location at the UAMS Northwest Campus in Fayetteville. According to a press release, the five centers will use evidence-based practices to train healthcare officials in the delivery of digital health services. Other locations opened yesterday are in Helena, West Helena, Lake Village, Pine Bluff, and at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. A groundbreaking is scheduled for this afternoon at 3 for the new Bentonville Animal Services and Adoption Center. This summer, the Bentonville City Council approved the more than $3.5 million project. The 7,100-square-foot facility will be at the corner of Southwest I and Southwest 41st. Construction could begin as early as January and be completed in 10 to 12 months. And there is an all-Arkansas battle tonight on Nolan Richardson Court in Bud Walton Arena as the 10th-ranked Razorback men host Central Arkansas. The Razorbacks enter the game 6-0. This is Ozarks at Large. For the first time since September, the Arkansas Department of Health is reporting more than 1,000 new cases of COVID-19 in a single day. The ADH report Tuesday included 12 additional deaths and an increase in hospitalizations, again, above 400. Governor Asa Hutchinson says the increases can be looked at two ways. If I'm the optimist, which I usually am, uh, that could be an accumulation of some slow days over the holidays that we hit this high water mark uh, on this day, and they might not be that high later in the week. If you're looking at it a little bit more uh, uh, perhaps realistically or uh, based upon uh, additional data, the fact that our positivity rate has creeped up to 9.1 percent uh, raises a concern that the trend line for the positivity rate indicates that we are uh, trending upward. The governor says vaccinations are increasing as well. He says of the nearly 13,000 shots given in the last 24-hour monitoring period, about 40 percent were first shots. He also points out that more than 72 percent of Arkansans 65 and older are fully vaccinated, another 12 percent of that vulnerable age group 
partially vaccinated. Dr. Jose Romero, Arkansas's Secretary of Health, says there is another age group he's concerned about. I want to point out that 30 percent of the new cases are occurring in the 5 to 18-year-old group, and we have vaccines for that group. So it's important that parents realize that this, fact, that this virus does affect children. It can have long-term consequences. Dr. Romero says while hospitalizations are ticking up, there is no bed space shortage crisis like there was this summer. But he warns against complacency, especially during cold winter months. Flu can burden our system. We expect a heavy flu season this year because we did not see flu last year, and we had a very attenuated course the year before that. So in the elderly and the adults, those individuals tend to go into the hospital during the winter. That will add a burden to this. And if I can be even more pessimistic, if we happen to have Omicron, on. That will certainly push us over the edge. So please get your vaccinations for COVID and for flu this year. He says if the numbers contained in yesterday's report continue, he's confident the state is entering another surge. And about that new variant that emerged in South Africa in November, Omicron, Governor Hutchinson says too little is known yet. He says he spoke with the White House yesterday and says governors are being kept informed. The governor says there is still a best practice for keeping the virus at bay. Get vaccinated. The governor and Dr. Romero made their comments yesterday at the weekly press briefing about COVID-19 at the state capitol. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us on this first day of December. As many as a million LGBTQ plus Americans are military veterans and, if qualified, are entitled to culturally competent VA medical benefits. But until recently, a portion of that population remained disqualified from the entitlement under a discriminatory policy repealed a decade ago. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with the LGBTQ plus care coordinator at Veterans Healthcare of the Ozarks in Fayetteville to bring us this story. Karen Pardue is a licensed clinical social worker at Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville. She's a case manager for post 9-11 military beneficiaries. We work with veterans when they are coming off active duty and transitioning over to VA healthcare. But um, I have a collateral role as the LGBTQ plus veteran care coordinator. Um, And I've been in this role for just coming up on two years. Um, I was involved with the LGBTQ plus committee prior and took over as one of the veteran care coordinators um, just within the past two years. The VA established its first LGBT health program back in 2012. Six years later, all VA facilities are required to have an LGBTQ plus coordinator who connect veterans with culturally competent providers, educate staff about where gaps in knowledge and training exist, and help create a more welcoming environment. Pardue says her role is mainly administrative. But more specifically, our role is to help with education of clinical staff. We have policies in place, and one of our roles is helping to educate, you know, our providers, our nurses on the VA policies towards the care of our LGBTQ veterans. Pardue received national training to fulfill the LGBTQ plus care coordination role. She also assists with case management to help such veterans receive appropriate care, and she engages in public outreach. The VA has four recognized awareness events. So, you know, June is Pride Month. We do some social media. We participate in community events. We marched in the Pride Parade. And then we have within our medical center also posters and flyers and things within our medical center as well. So when veterans come in, we we want them to recognize as this is a safe and accepting place. Um, We do different things. We have safety signals. Different staff will wear uh, rainbow lanyards, things like that, to just identify that I, I'm, a, I'm a safe person. The Fayetteville VA counts nearly 56,000 enrollees, but doesn't track what percentage are LGBTQ+, according to spokesperson Wanda Scholl. Such enrollees are qualified to receive gender-confirming hormone treatment, mental health services, STD counseling and treatment, and intimate partner violence reduction and treatment. The starting point for all healthcare, really for veterans, is is their primary care provider. And so they're going, because all care is clinically based. 
So, you know, there's a, a full spectrum of services that VA can provide for all veterans and then specifically for um, transgender veterans and um, lesbian, gay and bisexual veterans. And so they're, they're starting with their primary care team. For transgender veterans, the VA provides a centralized specialty clinic in Tucson, Arizona. So our primary care doctors, if a veteran comes to them and, and talks to them about, you know, being transgender, feeling as if they're not in their authentic gender, the doctor can put in a consult to the transgender clinic. It's an e-consult. So we're not actually making veterans go to Tucson, but um, it's really good um, record review, consultation, recommendations, that kind of thing. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs this summer announced plans to lift an explicit exclusion on gender confirmation surgeries. The proposed federal regulation to allow surgeries to be conducted and covered will take time to formulate. I think they call it the rulemaking phase right now. It's it's a a couple of years process is what we're being told out of the national office. Um, So, no, at this point, VA is not providing... Um, the gender affirming or confirming surgeries. Um, They can provide pre and post surgical care if veterans are receiving surgery through maybe private insurance or or in the community. We can provide some, you know, like I said, some supportive pre and post surgical care, not the surgeries themselves at this time. The VA does provide comprehensive mental health care to all LGBTQ plus veterans. The VA has very strict policies that it is not, you know, there n- none of the mental health care that is provided is about changing somebody's gender or what their feeling is as, as far as their gender identity. And then we have services through um, prosthetics where veterans can receive that help them live as the gender that they identify as. Everything is placed by the medical doctor in consultation with the veteran based on the clinical need. More than 134,000 transgender veterans from all sectors of the military have served their country, according to the Williams Institute, which tracks LGBTQ plus demographics. An estimated 15,000 transgender military members currently serve. Today, they're welcome under the Biden administration. After former President Donald Trump tweeted an order at the U.S. military to ban transgender people from serving, a directive that was never officially declared or fulfilled, most LGBTQ plus Americans struggle with their identities, coming out, living openly, and being targeted for violence. For a time, the Fayetteville VA offered LGBTQ plus support groups, Pardue says, Right now, we do not. We had a support group that we were holding, and it and it was through our mental health clinic. One of one of our clinicians was holding that. With COVID, it kind of faded away. They did not. We've been doing a lot of stuff virtual, of course, but they didn't. That was not a group that they were able to get going on a, on a virtual level. Um, we work closely with the Vet Center. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They are actually in process of taking referrals for a support group. We queried the Fayetteville Vet Center several times for a progress report with no response. Karen Pardue says she works hard to educate both LGBTQ plus veterans and providers about culturally competent care that's available and delivered. You know, that that's one of the big things that I feel like we get contacted by both the providers with, I have a veteran asking for that, whatever service, can we do that? How do we do that? What do I need to put in in a referral to? Because everything is clinically indicated. So you can't say veteran is asking for. And so we get those contacts. And we also get contacts from veterans who want to know again, what can we provide? Particularly, I think, because some of our services you know, are provided in the community through VA referrals and that can get a little confusing maybe for veterans as well. So we kind of help navigate that. LGBTQ plus Americans were long banned from serving in the U.S. military until 1994. That's when former President Bill Clinton issued a defense directive ordering recruiters to not ask military applicants to declare their sexual orientation. The policy, known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, allowed lesbian, gay, and bisexual veterans to remain in service, but they were barred from ever disclosing their identities. Those that did 
and they number around 14,000, were given an other-than-honorable discharge. That status barred such veterans from all VA benefits, not just health care, but guaranteed home loans, disability compensation, and more. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was finally repealed by the Obama administration a decade ago, but it took another decade for the Department of Veterans Affairs this year, this past September, to issue new guidance allowing such service members to finally be eligible for benefits. The VA called it a major reversal of harm done to all LGBTQ plus veterans. For now, Karen Pardue says the Fayetteville VA has yet to see any veterans who were discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Tomorrow morning, there will be an update on the work completed and planned next steps for the collection management facility, artifact care, and storage at Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. Arkansas Department of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism Secretary Stacy Hurst, Arkansas State Parks Deputy Director Shay Lewis, and park staff will lead the session at the Latta Barn at the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park tomorrow morning, beginning at 11. Washington Regional Her Health Clinic provides personalized care for women by women, including wellness visits, prenatal care, deliveries, and more. Located in the Washington Regional Women and Infants Center in Fayetteville, wregional.com slash herhealth for services, providers, and appointments. Sister Rosetta Tharp from Cotton Plant, Arkansas, was an architect of blues, gospel, R&B, and rock and roll, arguably one of the most influential musical figures of the past century. Theater Squared's new production of Marie and Rosetta covers a part of her life and brings us much of her music. Just before the show opened, Mickey Braden, the actor portraying Sister Rosetta, and the play's director, Steve H. Brodnax III, came to our studio to talk about the show and about bringing Sister Rosetta Tharp to the stage in her home state. It's an honor to be able to do it, and especially being able to do it here in Arkansas. You know, I um, knew about her. My mother is a church musician, grandmama sang, and realized after studying her that a lot of the songs that we did in our church or in our concerts were the were Rosetta songs. How about you? Your familiarity or your introduction to Sister Rosetta Tharp? Uh, my introduction to Sister Rosetta was through this play. Um, and I was on the original production of it in New York City. I was the associate director at that time at the Atlantic Theater. And that was the first time um, when George Brandt um, brought it and it made its world premiere. It was my first time um, knowing about her. And being uh, born and raised Arkansan, you know, from, from Little Rock, Arkansas, I was just amazed. You're right. She is the architect of rock and role, and that I didn't know this history. So I'm just honored to be a part of the production. Well, the history wasn't easily found until no. recently. Yeah. I mean, goodness, she was only put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we were in Cleveland. Yeah, when we, she was. Yeah. yeah. Really? When it? When yeah, it, we were doing this show at mm-hmm. Cleveland when she was inducted. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right. So the three of us know of about Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm going to assume some listeners may not. What would you tell them about Rosetta? She was one of the, she was, <laughs> she was everything. She believed in music. It wasn't about church music and secular music. It was about music. That's why she was very comfortable doing the jazz and the blues. You can hear the blues in her voice. But she was everything. I loved listening to her music. I even got the 55 uh, CD set. Just so I could listen, I'd ride down the road mm-hmm. listening to her, you know, to get more of a feeling. Because I'd play Bessie Smith and mm-hmm. Ma Rainey, and I, I could hear it all. I could hear it. But they, people need to hear, and they need to recognize what she contributed. I, I agree. What will we see? What will we hear? Um, you will hear her tunes for sure, um, both um, her gospel songs and hits and her secular, I would say, her popular music that she would sing at the Cotton Club. So you're going to get a chance to hear her music and definitely just see her spirit. See, um, yesterday we joked, it uh, was our first preview, and afterwards, it's definitely church. You're, you're going to be able to come to church with Sister Rosetta Tharp and Miss Marie Knight. Okay, I want to come back to the production. As you pointed out, the title of this production doesn't just have Rosetta's name in it. 
it has Marie Knight. Yes. Who is she? Um, she was um, a protege, would you say? Yeah. Uh, you uh, of, yes. of, of Sister Rosetta Thorpe. I'll let you talk more about that. <laughs> um, I think Rosetta was at the time trying to get back into the gospel circuit. Mahalia Jackson had come in and just kind of just took over. And she heard Marie at uh, one of the concerts, maybe even a tent show, I don't know which mm-hmm. one it was, and just said, I have to have her sing with me. And that's how they met. And basically, you hear about it while you're doing the play, because that's what it's about, about how Marie and Rosetta met and how they developed together. I just think it's so interesting, as I hear you talk about it, about like contemporary groups like Mary Mary. Yeah. And they stand on the foundation of Sister Rosetta Thorpe and Marie, that there was this contemporary gospel, which was, was new and uh, revolutionary at the time, you know, and what Rosetta was doing with gospel music, like merging that contemporary instrumentation and sound and arrangement with um, good news. Uh, as I would say, you know, the gospel was coined at well, blues, and which was something I learned from this show that blues uh, was the predecessor to birth gospel. And you may think it's the other way around, but no, blues birthed gospel. And the difference was uh, Thomas Dorsey said that a guy, um, blues was um, a woman in pain singing about low down, but gospel was good news. So that's the difference between the two. You mentioned that she believed in music. She believed in the power of music and and the good news. You think about her most um, well-known gospel songs. They are about something better. If if you're not in a good place now, something better is coming. Mm-hmm. She was yes. an internal optimist, it seemed. Yeah, it does seem like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're preparing, I, we we know Sister Rosetta Tharp's music. Those of us who are aware of her. If you read the book Shout Sister Shout, you may know about her life. When you're going to bring her to life, decades later, what do you find out about her and what do you think about as you become her in front of us? Well, I didn't read all of Shout, Sister Shout, but the, the uh, author of the book, Gail Wald, she got in touch with me and sent me a copy. You know, But I try to get into what was going on at the time. I look at what does it relate to me because I've been put out of church for doing pop songs and putting gospel lyrics to them. Regardless of the fact that it brought the kids together and they started learning things like Bible verses and everything, they could not deal with it. So I put my own experience of singing in the nightclub, singing in the church, directing the choirs, I pulled all that in it to make it real, to make it live, you know, through me. And I, it's just wonderful to do it every night. And, of course, she faced criticism oh, for her yes. secular music. And oh, yes, she did. Ostracization and whatnot. Yes. And no, it doesn't make any sense because music is music, you know, and that's what she was trying to show. But they couldn't get to it. I was just thinking, I love that you say music because I think of one of the lines from the play. She says, um, all those notes are going to the same place. Some just getting there with a little bit more style. <laughs> I love. <laughs> yes, yes. What's it like to be with a show, different cities, different years, slightly different perhaps incarnations, to travel through er- geography and time with a show? I love it. I love being able to come back. And this is Mickey and I's third time doing the show together. Third, if you count fourth, if you count Cincinnati. um, So we've been with it for years now. And I love working with Miss Mickey and um, a foundation we get to lay and just keep building. Each time we come to it, it's not like we're like, been here, done that. Let's just turn it on. You know, no, we each, uh, there's a new investigation that we both go into it. I've learned each time we do it. um, What's beautiful about this particular version, it is different from the one we did before. George yes. um, Brandt, who wrote the book, he wrote an Arkansas version. So what you're seeing is tailored to Arkansas because um, when we were together in Little Rock and yeah. Cleveland, yeah. when we were back in Cleveland, I sat with him. I remember in the room and I said, hey, you know, I'm from Little Rock. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I would love to bring her home. And he said, I would love that. I was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if we can bring her home. And it, and it happened years later. Right. Um, the author reached out to me today and was just so happy that uh, she's back home. But he tailored and rewrote some of the script to fit to take place in Arkansas. So you have a very tailored script for her. 
here. Don't give anything away you don't want to, but could you give us an example of what might be slightly different or altered or tailored to an Arkansas version? It took the locations are different. Uh-huh. Here it is a um, revival tent mm-hmm. in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. So that's the location is, is different. Yes. Is this invigorating? This role, this production for you? Oh, yes, it is. There's so many messages in this show that you cannot help but rise up. You know, after going through the pandemic and everything, and then you hear all these positive words that Rosetta's saying, and you can't help but just go out there and dun da da da, you know, you're Superwoman. <laughs> it is wonderful. She was also very charismatic. If you see the videos that exist, there's one where she's at a train station, uh, Top of the Pops or some British show. And she has, and I don't mean this in any bad way, she has some swagger. Oh, yes, she did. Some performance, (laughs) some, some style. Yes, I, and, and that's Mickey. I, I, I think, see, Mickey, um, she, Mickey, people don't know. She, I mean, she's done, has albums. She's done toward the world. I mean, Mickey is a consummate musician. And it, it's, she is Rosetta Thorpe to me, you know what I mean, in the contemporary sense. She has embodied, has lived um, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. So it's, it's beautiful to be a see and be a part of. So I'm interested, this, this story is about two very talented people from different generations. I think you're from different generations based on the first movies you saw. (laughs) Have you thought about that? I mean, you've had this relationship through four Long time. Yeah. Yeah, I just respect Miss Mickey so much and what she brings to the table. Her voice is one of the best I've ever heard. Her acting, her just person. You're talking about swag. Miss Mickey got swag. <laughs> and so I just love working with her. And and since we've met, I, I don't see anybody else who could do it better than Miss Mickey, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. So it's been an awesome that she mm. says yes every time I call. I'm going, would you do said, this? Oh, you directed it? Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm like, would you do this with me? And so she said yes every time. You know, when he um, when he was the associate director, when the director went out of town, we had so much fun rehearsing. <laughs> and then when he called and asked if I would do it in Little Rock, I said, oh, you're directing? Okay, yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. You know, I'm packing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about his direction or partnership or collaboration that makes it so much fun and so much desirable? It's fun. He's just fun. <laughs> you know, we find he's got uh, different titles for different parts of the show, and it makes sense. Um, and he allows us to try things, you know, to see where it comes from from our point of view. And that is something I, I hate to say that a lot of directors don't do. You know, it's like you move here, you turn this way, and you do this this way, and you use this inflection. No. He allows you to be. It seems like that would be the wrong way to do something that's especially about music, especially about Sister Rosetta Tharp's music, which pulled from so many different places. I, I just think as a director, I think my job is service. I'm a little different. I believe it's service to the play and service to the artist. So um, one of my favorite directors, I never got a chance to meet him, was Lord Richard, who directed all of August Wilson's plays. And he said, all things being equal, the um, playwright knows the most because they wrote it and created it. But all things being equal, the director knows the most because he, she, or they get to the piece and it's through their vision. But all things being equal, the artist knows the most because they live it. And so I stand by that. I just really give grace and homage to artists. And I believe people before plays. So and allowing them to use their instrument, like music, right? You, you, a pianist, the, 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 the score or whatever is the same. But depending upon the person who plays it, that's the instrument that it comes out of as a, as a vocalist, as a, 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 a musician. So I just really allow I think it's, that's where the magic and the spirit is. It's within the people and allowing them to embody the material. Is it easy for people to stay seated and still during this show? No. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. And, and uh, be ready to have church. Yeah, be ready to have church. And clap on the two and the four. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Brayton is Sister Rosetta Tharp and Marie and Rosetta. We also heard the director of the play, Steve H. Brodnax III. Marie and Rosetta is playing through December 12th at Theater Squared. More at theater2.org. Up above my head, 
hear music in the air. Up above my head, there is music in the air. Up above my head, music in the air. And I really do believe, really do believe, joy somewhere. All in my room, music everywhere. All in my home, music in the air. Up above my head, that is music in the air. This is Ozarks at Large. If you ask an Arkansas Razorback football fan what the most momentous football weekend on the University of Arkansas campus in history was, the likely answer is a late 1969 weekend when Texas came to town for a matchup between the top two ranked teams, a game that was broadcast on national television when such broadcasts were limited to just one or two per weekend. And it was a big weekend for football indeed. But much bigger matters were unfolding as Charlie Allison, the executive editor with University Relations at the University of Arkansas, points out in his latest dispatch about the first 150 years of the University of Arkansas. In the summer of 1971, Gene McKissick told his mother that he was going to run for president of the university's associated student government during the next school year. His parents were apprehensive about the idea. Gene McKissick would be the first black student to run for the office, and he knew as well as anyone that racial advocacy on campus during his freshman and sophomore years had often led to heated disputes and tense confrontations. In recalling those years, he told my colleague, Delaney Bartlett, about the disparities in how black students were treated by administrators and by fellow white students, saying, quote, We were not perceived or accepted as full-fledged students on the same basis as white students. When attending Razorback games, he told Bartlett, white students would yell at black students and throw things like paper cups and beer cans at them. He said that girls would bring umbrellas to the games because white students were throwing gum into the girls' hair. So McKissick had reason to be apprehensive about running for office. And yet he saw hope, too. The slow march toward equality on campus during the 1960s had shown black students that persistence on their part could slowly change the policies and procedures of the university. In December 1962, a group of students calling themselves Students for Freedom demonstrated against discrimination in university housing. At the time, the university wouldn't allow black students to live in the campus residence halls, but instead assigned black women to a separate frame residential house and required black men to live off campus. Similar challenges were made in 1963 to the university's refusal to integrate its athletic teams. The University of Arkansas's position was not helped when its arch rifle, the University of Texas, integrated its teams that year. The next year, though, saw several pushes forward. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. A University of Arkansas student named Raymond Carter filed a complaint with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And a group of white students, including future legal and political luminaries such as Morris Arnold, Sandy McMath, and David Malone, also called on the administration to integrate the residence halls and the athletic teams. Before classes started in the fall, Joanna P. Edwards and Robert Whitfield filed a lawsuit seeking those remedies. Both of them had applied for on-campus housing, but had been denied. Their lawsuit wanted integration of the residence halls and athletics, but they also made a case for the hiring of black faculty, the integration of campus social activities, and recruitment at predominantly black high schools in Arkansas. Attorneys for Edwards and Whitfield included U of A alumni George Howard and Wiley Branton. The judge in the case ruled quickly that the university must integrate the residence halls because the fall semester was about to start, but he allowed more arguments on the other elements. By the spring, though, he declared that the university could not discriminate at any of its policies, including the awarding of scholarships, the recruitment of athletes or other students, and assignment of campus housing. The university could not make distinctions of operation based on race, period. By 1968, though, many of those distinctions were still at play. Black students on campus formed a new student organization that year called Black Americans for Democracy, or BAD for short. Their first action came against the student newspaper, the Arkansas Traveler. The paper had published a letter to the editor by a white student who wondered why the newspaper had devoted so much space to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. that year. Incensed, John Rowe, a black student from El Dorado, wrote a letter to rebut the earlier letter to the editor and took it to the Traveler office. But his letter wasn't printed. Rose sought several more times to have the letter printed. When it wasn't, the Black Americans for Democracy and the Southern Student Organizing Committee blocked the entrance to Hill Hall, the building which housed the student newspaper offices. 
they called on the student newspaper to represent the whole student body in its coverage. The success of the Traveler blockade led the Black Americans for Democracy to pursue larger goals in 1969, a year when the first black faculty members to pursue tenure, Gordon Morgan and Margaret Clark, were hired and the first African-American scholarship athletes, Almer Lee and John Richardson, were finally named. The members of BAD took on their next challenge, a change less about policy and more about culture. They called for the Razorback Band to quit playing the song Dixie, a southern anthem of nostalgia for a day when cotton plantations were operated by white masters and worked by enslaved black people. The lyrics were offensive to anyone who thought about the song for half a second. As McKissick later put it, the feeling of black students at the time was, quote, we will not stay on this campus and be insulted like that. Five days before the big game of the season, the Arkansas-Texas game, expected to be attended by the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, the Black Americans for Democracy conducted their biggest demonstration to date. They prevented the Razorback Band from entering the stage of the Chi Omega Greek Theater for the traditional pep rally. When the demonstrators faced the audience and told them there wouldn't be a pep rally, the white crowd threw rocks, cans, and beer bottles at the stage. After the pep rally, a black student, Daryl Brown, was shot in the leg by a pellet gun, apparently by someone in a passing vehicle. While the protest caused the band to refrain from playing Dixie at the nationally broadcast football game against Texas, the band continued to play it at other events. The following spring, about 70 members of BAD staged a sit-down in the offices of University President David Mullins and Vice President of Student Affairs Bill Denman. The students came away feeling as though the administration was beginning to listen. They also met with the student senate and explained their opposition to the playing of Dixie. The senators were swayed by those arguments and voted 28 to 6 to discontinue the song. Unbeknownst to them, the new band director, Eldon Jansen, had talked with band members and had also made a decision that Dixie would no longer be played. Those decisions meant that the Black Americans for Democracy had achieved not just a policy change, but a cultural change in the university. During this time period, members also created a parallel set of organizations to the majority white institutions. They started a student newspaper for black students called Bad Times. They created a beauty pageant known as Miss Ebony. They founded Greek fraternities and sororities within the traditional black Panhellenic system. It's little wonder that by 1972, the members of Bad were also thinking that a black student should run for student body president. Despite the apprehension of Jean McKissick's parents, the campaign went well. No protests, no violence. The other student competing for the presidency, a political science major named William Buffalo, or Bill Buffalo as everyone knew him, ran a clean, positive race. On election day, four voting centers were available across campus. Gene McKissick swept all four and garnered 59% of the student vote. A huge banner across the top of the Arkansas Traveler said it simply, McKissick wins. Charlie Allison is the executive editor at University Relations with the University of Arkansas. And most Wednesdays, he delivers accounts of the people, traditions, events, and places connected with the first 150 years of the U of A. More about the school's sesquicentennial can be found at 150.uark.edu. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program offers free, confidential, unbiased advice for those receiving or about to receive Medicare and the Part D drug plan. Open enrollment runs through December 7th. ARSHIP can help individuals make the correct decision about their health care needs, including the Part D drug plan. Help and information is available at 1-800-224-6330. That's one 800 2246330 This is Ozarks at Large with me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio is Sherry Ottaviano who is KUAF's membership director. Happy December. Happy December to you. My only problem with December, it's cold. Two of problems. my problems <laughs> with December, it's often cold. Yes. And it gets dark. At seemingly 2.30 so in the afternoon. Early, so And I'm early. sleepy by 4. I'm not wishing my life away, but I really <laughs> do like once we get to December 22nd, the days start incrementally getting lighter at the end of the day. Exactly. I'm sleepy on my way home at night. 
Well, let's wake someone up because they're about to become the KUAF winner for November. That's right. I'm so happy and and, uh, grateful to be able to tell Megan Wedgworth from Bella Vista, Arkansas. Congratulations. You have been randomly selected to receive a night out on KUAF. I've got a gift card to Mockingbird Kitchen and some movie passes for you. And Ms. Wedgworth, I mean, you're going to get this soon because Sherry has them already sealed in the official KUAF envelope. That's correct. It's going to go out in the mail in moments. Um, now, next week is the KUAF Winter Fundraiser. Yes, it's our season of giving fundraiser. Yes. It runs from December 6th through December 10th. So we will be live on air raising the funds that are necessary to, necessary to keep programming on the air. Now, I think you and Lee Wood, our general manager, and Timothy Dennis have been working on a project that comes in CD form. Can we tell people about this yet, or is this still a secret? Uh, I think we can tell people. I'm, okay. I'm not sure, but... Um, the, well, you're about to be. I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to spill the beans. This year, um, for your gift of $20 a month or $240, we will be sending you, if you would like, a 2021 holiday CD. It is a collection of of live holiday performances that were done during Ozarks at Large. And um, I'm really excited about it. I got to go back and listen to all kinds of Christmas music. And um, I'm so happy to be featuring these local artists. And uh, there's even a special (laughs) entry on there. Uh, Twas the night before Christmas. I won't spoil the surprise. um, But um, we want people to give so they get it. Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll tell you more details about how you can get this one-of-a-kind holiday CD for a limited time uh, beginning next week. That's correct. And if you give next week or you're already a sustaining member, maybe we'll say your name on January 6th when we do the December winner. That's correct. We will uh, randomly select another winner of a night out on KUAF. Sherry Ottaviano, Membership Director at KUAF, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is Ozarks at Large. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, host Dr. Karee Banton talks to Dr. Valandra, a professor of social work at the University of Arkansas. Valandra's research focuses on intergenerational trauma and resiliency, especially within black families. One example of reliving that trauma can be watching movies about slavery. So Karee asks if there are productive ways to cope with that kind of tragic history. I think that it's it's very understandable that some black people want to kind of distance themselves from the tragic history of enslavement, Jim Crow, black codes, and other forms of structural, economic, and social, cultural, educational victimization. In fact, who the hell wouldn't want to <laughs> if they had an opportunity to do otherwise? I want people to read okay. it, Dr. V. So here's the deal. <laughs> it's very pervasive, and you have to pace yourself. Yeah, that's that's the, the, the issue. I think that's really, really important because psychologically, physically, emotionally, people are dealing with a hell of a lot mm-hmm. and they have to keep breathing. They have to keep making a way. They have to keep thriving. They have to keep excelling despite. So one of the ways to deal with it is to avoid it, distance yourself from it, deny it. It's human nature. In fact, it can be protective in helping people to disassociate themselves. Now, there is a cost, (laughs) right? Because when you weigh the cost, you can't continue to, you can't always avoid or distance or dismiss. So, for example, one of the things that we talk about in social work and like in in looking at issues, let's just say, you know, slave movies, for example. It might be very triggering to go to a theater, you know, a theater full of people, and watch some traumatic thing that has happened to your ancestors, right? But if there's a possibility of watching it through streaming in your own home, right? or you go to the movie, but you pick the people that you're going to go Go to. Yeah, Yeah, you go to the movie with a support system in place. All of these kinds of things are, are ways of coping with so that you don't distance yourself from it, but you engage in it in a, in a, in in a, a much more way. healthy and therapeutic and supportive and compassionate way. Like when we went to go see... see Black Panther. Yes, exactly. Black Panther. That's <laughs> the, the whole group pulled up, dressed up. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, and I remember when I went to see <laughs> Beloved when it came out. You remember that? Ooh, yes, I do. Because I went with a couple of friends, and that movie was hard to watch. And I was so glad. And it was just by accident that I had invited a couple of my friends to go with me, but I was glad that it was only them. I I had nightmares for a long time. I slept with the lights on. Oh, wow. Twelve years of slave. I went to see that with my mom and two other friends on purpose. And right after the movie, we went back to the house and we had a discussion. Right. Yes. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you have to do when you are looking at, you know, tragic movies, because they aren't, even though they, even though they are fictionalized, mm-hmm. they are based in truths. Yeah. And they're based in centuries and centuries and centuries of oppression. And of, they might trigger people. something. And they, yes. And they are triggering. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's just really, really important to... Uh, give people time and space to avoid, uh, to deny, to dismiss, but then also to re-engage. And then there are just ways in which you can re-engage that are supportive. They help create psychological and psychic space so that you can journey into that trauma in a way that can be healing and be a part of recovery and not re-traumatization. Yeah. Yes. I remember the first time I watched Roots. Mm-hmm. There you go. Oh, that's, that's my another God. One. Mm-hmm. I had to take some time off. Yes. Ciao. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I yes. was upset. Yes. <laughs> right. And that's important. Yeah. Yes. It's important to give your, yourself time and space to feel what you're going to feel. And what happens sometimes is because these stories about enslavement and uh, like 12 years of slave and all these these kinds of tragic parts of our history, uh, you know, unfortunately, many times there aren't in, there aren't other outlets for discussing them, you know, unless someone takes a class in African and African American studies, uh, you know, or something right. like that, because, you know, many times we're in families where how they've dealt with it is push it aside. It's, push it aside. You, you yeah. know, when we talk about lynching, there are people who've had lynchings in their, their family members who have been lynched and they do Don't not talk about have it. conversations like that with, you know, the next generation and the next generation. And, so um, yeah. it's just really important to engage in that kind of exploration or um, witnessing of the history in ways that are supportive and that don't re-victimize and re-traumatize people. You study intergenerational trauma, which is just so very fascinating to me because, you know, African-Americans are known to add a lot of benefits to this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that African-American families go about living their lives, that is so unlike the white American paradigm is so fascinating to me. It's the same thing. Um, having grown up in Jamaica, you know, a family means an extended family. You know, you're talking about your grandma, your uncles and your aunties. It's not just your immediate to, you know, whoever is in your household, your kids and yourself, that's that's the family. No, your intergenerational um, relations are very important to you, what you, how you go back and how you go forward. So you studied that kind of intergenerational trauma. Um, can you tell us what is that and what led you to, to such a study and how did you go about studying it in an undisciplined way and what you have found? Well, I do study intergenerational intergenerational trauma, but I also study intergenerational resilience. And in a nutshell, it's understanding ways by which individuals and families transmit values, attitudes, beliefs, ethics, coping mechanisms, the the way they live from one generation to the next generation, and assessing the protective features or assets and the risk features or limitations in what gets transmitted. And I started studying intergenerational trauma and resilience within my own intergenerational family or extended family system. And and first, just listening to my grandparents talking about their lives living in Arkansas. And they were both born in 1919, one in Mariana, Arkansas, one in Wheatley, Arkansas. 
and then they migrated to Omaha in 1944 when my mother was four years old. So listening to the ways in which they coped with racism, how they attempted to protect themselves and their children, the things that they told their children and how to survive and thrive despite, you know, races, uh, the spirituality, the work ethic that they passed on to the next, you know, generation in looking at the ways that they talked about things. There were some stories and some methods that, that they transmitted that I felt were helpful and protective. So I called those, you know, protective, proactive ways of helping their family, uh, the family, the next generation survive and thrive. But there were also some things that they transmitted, for example, remaining silent about interpersonal violence and uh, victim blaming within the family system as a way of coping that I would describe as maladaptive. And so those were those were things that were also transmitted. So, for example, you know, if you see, you know, your father beating your mother or your, you know, uh, brother beating a sister or something, you don't say anything about it. Yeah. You know, you pray to God. In fact, <laughs> you know, just pray to God and encourage God, you know, and, and pray to God and God and, and that'll help. Well, no, that didn't work so well. So those were some of the things that I was so like. So they use spirituality to mask some yeah. of the intergenerational uh, maladaptive strategies. Yes, and and that got passed on generation to generation to generation. And I'm telling you that it's it's also one of the things that led me into looking at domestic violence, sexual assault. What you're willing to put up with from a man. That's right. Girl, he'll change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or what, you know, what did you do wrong? Yeah. Right. What did you do wrong <laughs> right. that resulted in, you know, him, him to hit you, hit, hit you again? Mm-hmm. No, that just was not working. So that those are the maladaptive things that can be transmitted as generationally. Well, you know, generationally. Yeah. Another one that I think that is also very, and this one is tricky because it it is when when you look at the larger system, you know the the, the larger system of white supremacy and racism, and particularly the way black men are victims. What also gets transmitted and got transmitted in my family is that you have to protect black men at all costs. Don't call the police. That's right. And that means even if it means sacrificing the uh, victim, sacrificing a child, sacrificing the woman, sacrificing a a child who has been physically or sexually abused by a black man, you have to do that because of racism. Because And we get socialized generationally to do that. And it is problematic. It is very, very problematic. Black power is for black men. Yeah, right. that's right. Exactly. Black (laughs) power is for black men. And then you get called a race traitor. You know, you, you know, there's an expectation. You're running behind these white feminists, you know, betraying the black man. Yes. And and all of that impacts the the research that I do when I look at African-Americans and domestic violence and sexual assault that, and that's that intergenerational message that gets and you you see it happening over and over and over and and we have to do something about that we have to find ways of supporting black men but also holding them accountable Undiscipline is produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. It's a collaboration between KUAF and the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies. You can hear the rest of this conversation and every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum on the Square in downtown Bentonville, featuring visits from Santa December 8th, 14th, and 16th from 5 to 8 p.m. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Tallahena, Oklahoma. Today's program was produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Charlie Allison, Dr. Karee Batten, and Undisciplined Podcast is produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. Our appreciation to Sherry Ottaviano, KUAF's membership director, for stopping by the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio today. And thank you for spending time with us today. Let's do it again tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3 or by podcast, available for free through all major podcast distributors. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums.